update. Welcome back to another episode from the Locker Room Podcast. I'm delighted today to have a good friend of mine and blast from the past, the coach, Harry Watlin, who's now head coach or manager at Hartford Athletic in the USL in Connecticut. Previously at APD, I'll let him explain the, the programme he set up there in a little while, and also West Ham, Millwall and Chelsea Academy coach. Um, H, pleasure to have you on, mate. Thanks for coming on this morning. No, Ross, thank you very much for having me on. I'm excited to talk about um, some, some topics that you've got planned. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. Just before we delve in, just a quick thank you and uh, continued support from our sponsors, Ripped. Ripped is a software platform built for performance coaches and organisations with easy-to-use programming tools, training load, well-being and nutrition monitoring via the Ripped app. All your coaching tools are in one place. Streamlining your coaching, making it more accessible for your clients and athletes and providing you with the insights you need to optimise performance. To find out more, please head over to www.rip.app and use the code LOCKERROOM to get your two-month free trial. The guys over there are doing a great job. So H, I guess, mate, I met you in 2009, I think it was, at, at Chelsea Academy. We were working on the 4G there with the, the different age groups. Could you explain to the listeners a little bit about your journey prior to that? And then obviously since then, since I've gone separate ways and so have you on, on loads of different things to kind of what you're doing now, mate. Yeah, so I, I think um, ultimately, you know, fell into coaching as, as, a, as a player that wasn't quite good enough to, to go the full, you know, the full shabam, done a little bit of non-league and whatnot. Um, and uh, before, I went into, before I went into the academy football, um, see a, just see a little bit of a niche in the market, really, to, to go into schools and deliver, deliver their PE lessons. Um, so I started a company up, um, just a really small company, just me, one-man band, going into primary schools, doing the after-school clubs, doing the lunch clubs and, and doing the PE lessons. And then just built that up. And I you know, built that up to a point where every, every club I worked for, I was still having that running in the background. Um, and got it to a point where it was as big as 25 schools um, with, with 18 to 20 staff. Um, so, so I sort of see that niche in the market and that sort of aligned with me um, going into just being a, a one night a week man at a development centre at Chelsea. Um, and their development centre programme was like satellite centres that, that was run by, by Mickey Bill. Um, and, and I was in charge of the Kidbrook Centre. Um, and just worked my way up at Chelsea. Had five brilliant years there, um, which I'm sure we'll delve into later. Then, then went to, to Millwall. When I when I come away from Chelsea, I had a you know some really nice decisions to make. Had some clubs sort of speaking to me, but one of my one of my sort of goals was to work at my boyhood club, um, Millwall Football Club. So went to Millwall. Had four great years there. Then then went to West Ham, which was a brilliant experience, like top top academy three seasons at West Ham and, and then I got the opportunity and I got a phone call from the US to, to go and be a manager at 31 and couldn't, couldn't really turn that down. And while that was going on, it was another opportunity for me that I see working with release footballers. Um, and, and that's where APD comes in, just working with footballers that have come out of the system, helping them get back into the system and opening up centres for them. So sort of, you know, spinning all of those plates uh, at the same time, give me... I suppose a, a real good rounded experience of I don't, you know, working with four-year-olds, delivering a PE lesson to four-year-olds, whilst then delivering a one-to-one -one with an under 18 that's just been, you know, come out of a Premier League club to then working at Chelsea, which 
you know, I, I believe that the time in our era, if you like, was was easily one of the best in the world. So that's probably a whistle-stop tour, and I'm sure we'll be able to dig into to the details. Sure, mate. Thank you very much. I'm interested, before we get on to the academy stuff and, and later on, and your most recent one, the APD stuff then. So um, Athletic Player Development, is that what it stands for? Advanced Player Development. Advanced yeah. Player Development, yeah, perfect. So in terms of how long have you had that going for, what sort of strategies did you put in place in terms of players coming out? Was there like a recruitment system in place? And you seem to be fairly successful. What's the rates then that players have gone back into the either the legal or the non-league game? Yeah, well, how it worked initially, it was just, just me doing individual stuff, one-to-ones, and just picking players up after they've been dropped, really, confidence low, and helping them just with individual development plans. That then spiralled into a, a local college approached me and, um, and asked me if I would run their post-16 to 18 programme, to which that was normally three training sessions a week and a game. And, and what I added to that was recruitment, uh, video analysis, um, playing against pro clubs. So what we ended up creating was a package where players could come in and they could train. We ended up training five times a week, so four times on the grass, once in the gym. We would do video analysis of our Wednesday college games. And then once a month, I'd, I'd organise games against pro clubs. And I'd say to the pro clubs, look, you can have any of these. Like, you can have any of them. None of them have got agents. There's no, there's no trap door underneath anything I'm offering here. If you like them, you know, get them in, give them a chance. And I replicated that model across four different sites. Um, and then we did, you know, younger groups, got development centres in, in Eltham, um, one down in Chatham, and recently had one in Bromley that we've moved sites. But we've had, Ross, we've had over 80 players gone back into the system. And it's, it's I don't think we're adding anything. I just think we're making them feel a little bit better about themselves and making them feel a little bit more aware about what they're good at. Um, and, you know, my beliefs around sort of developing players is really highlighting what they're good at because if that gets you in the door, then, then that's a really important aspect. And then I think we've got to talk about what keeps you in there, what keeps you in there. And I think we've got, you know, we, have, we do have a tendency in general to go, right, when you see a player, first of all, you're great at highlighting what they're good at. And then when you see them after a while, you start thinking you're great at highlighting what they're not very good at. Whereas I think what we've got to try and harness is you know, why are they here? So, you know, if you look at the top, top players and you look at players like Trent Alexander-Arnold, you say, well, OK, let's work on his defending, but I'm not being funny. His crossing ability and his passing ability and his range are world-class. You know, you go all the way back down to the level I'm talking about. This, these are the conversations I was having with the players and it just snowballed from there, really. Pro clubs started to realise that I would put the lads on a minibus, I would drive them up there they would play the games and they would always get a player from it. So we'd go to Birmingham's, we'd go, um, we took the players up to Man City, we'd go everywhere. We went to Wales, we went up to the Midlands, we went up to the Northeast, and, you know, we had some fantastic games and, and the boys, you know, really relished it. We played at St George's Park um, and, it, you know, it, it, it's been brilliant and it still runs now. Company still runs now and, you know, I've got some, some brilliant staff that look after it. But again, it was just something where I thought that you know, what happens to these players once they're just let let go? And, it, you know, it was something where if the boys got that opportunity, they, 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 they took it with both hands. Yes, fantastic stuff, mate. A couple of points you made there, brilliant. I think you've been very modest about it. you didn't add anything. I think you gave them probably the professional development side that they wouldn't get when they come out of the game. 
So you've probably still worked on them 100%. And also about highline strengths, how, how what you've seen it in academy level, we, we go to the limitations. He's not going to get to the next level because of. Now, if there's a reason they can't get to the next level, you have to work on it, of course. But what's their super strength? Fantastic point, H. Hey, just coming back then to the, the development side, you, you, you're very, very passionate about development. You can, you can hear that straight off the bat now. What sort of things or how important was it that you spent your years through the different ages you're working with, um, different clubs you've worked at, you've seen different philosophies and what sort of stuff have you taken from each club to put into your own philosophy from a development standpoint over the years? Yeah, that's oh, a great question. I speak about this a lot. I think when we was at, when we was at Chelsea, Ross, and I, and I say this a lot and I say this with the utmost respect to staff players, but the players taught me more than anything because they were so good and they were so competitive. I felt like when we was in that environment, they pushed each other and they inspired each other, which, which always leads me to when I'm, when I'm creating and designing a practice, I'll always put the best players against the best players. And I think that's important for, for sparring. I think it's important to have good sparring. I think your best dribbler should, should be playing up against your best defender at times for, for them to check and challenge each other. Millwall taught me, taught me many things about environment and culture and, and behaviours and behaving properly and what grit and determination and how far that can get you. Um, and West Ham was, was unbelievable for pushing individual development. Um, and I feel really lucky because all three clubs are incredibly different. My personal philosophy on, on, the, on being a developer in, de in development is get a player ready, and this is regardless of their age, by the way, get them ready to play in any team. So if you're talking about a centre-half, he needs to be able to defend. He needs to be able to defend a long ball, needs to be able to defend a, a through ball, needs to be able to defend a ball into feet, needs to be able to hit a diag, a line-breaking pass, and break a line himself with you know, dribbling into the pitch. But get, get them ready so they can play under any manager and be an adaptable individual so that you know, if, you, if you're playing under a manager for a season who wants to play total football, they're, they're able to do it and they're able to do it and enjoy it. And if they're playing you know, for a manager who's maybe a little bit more pragmatic that wants to put the ball into certain areas, they can do that as well. And that, that's something I think is really important that Terry Wesley said to me when I first went to West Ham, he said, we need to give these players a career. And I think to give a player a career, they have to have, they have, to have that robustness mentally to be able to adapt and be agile and play for anybody. Yeah, sure. That word adaptable is key, isn't it, in, in, in the approach. What did you, so, look, I've, you know, I'm currently working in QPR, similar to, to Millwall, Cat 2. We was at Chelsea, like I said, the players were on a, a different planet. You know, you could put on a very mediocre session and they could turn it into a world-class session. In terms of when you went to Millwall then, did you feel like you had to do extra work to get the best out of the players? The players coming in aren't getting the top pickings. They're going to Cat 1 clubs. Do you feel like the coaching at the Cat 2 levels have to be arguably better to accelerate those players to roof? I think, I think the dynamic at Chelsea was interesting because, you know, if I'm being honest, every single age group, nine times out of ten, won every week. Um, you was coming off of the pitch. I mean, me personally, I would say that if I was ever in trouble in it, you know, if I was ever looking at a game and I felt like the boys were, were struggling or getting beaten, we would match the opposition up. And because we had better players, we would come out on top. And that was probably doing the boys a disservice, you know, back, you know, thinking about it now, now that I've got the foresight to look back at that. But that, that was just how it was. We had very, very good players. I think the ambition and the competitiveness at Millwall was honestly at another level. They... You know, they were borderline trying to kill each other in training. They wanted it so badly, Ross, because 
they were coming from environments where they, they needed to make it. They didn't want to make it. They had to make it because, you know, I talk about players like Darko JB, who, you know, I had him for three seasons back-to-back at Millwall and he, he ends up going to Man City. He's flying now. The reason why he's flying at Man City is because of his, his energy and his love and his enthusiasm to be a winner, focus, desire to compete, willingness to learn. And every training session, honestly, was like a war at Millwall. It was, it was mad. It was, you, did not have to, you did not have to coach motivation at Millwall at all. They come, they come onto the pitch at Well Hall, ready to train, shin pads on. Everybody wanted to be a winner. Everybody wanted to try and try and win every training session. Um, and I think it was about, you know, making sure that we would have, I think at a cat one, I think it's fair to say out of 18 players, you've got 18 players. I think at a cat two, you have slightly less and you have to, you know, be mindful of who's going to be a late bloomer, who's going to be one that comes out of nowhere, be mindful of that. Who's your gold medalist now? Can you challenge them so that they don't fall by the wayside because they find it too easy? Um, so those things are really important. And I think, you know, people do get a little bit carried away with the category statuses. I think, you know, category statuses are the amount of bodies you've got in the building, the building itself, the money that, that, the money that was paid for, for the building itself, how much kit people have got. You know, I think that some of the best cat twos and cat threes I've seen have got the best programs I've seen. QPR, where you work, being one of them under Rambo, I think. You know, Chris Ramsey's a genius. Um, so we, I, I wouldn't say we had to, we had to, you know, coach any more or less. I just think it was about, you know, what have I got in front of me, and how can I create a pathway for these individuals because they're different to the ones that I had previously. Yeah, good answer, mate. Yeah, very good points. I think what you said there about challenging the gold medalists, uh, the, the match-ups, the sparring partners is important because there can be quite a big disparity in the group. Um, maybe as you go down, as you say, but that's a great answer. Um, fast forward a little bit, H, then to your, your current role, where you've done a season now in the US. Very, very different uh, challenge. You've always you've worked with academies, parts, you've had lots of plates spinning, and now you've gone into a, a full-time gig over in the, in the USL. Talk a little bit how that happened, mate, how, how you got over there and your experiences in the first season, if, if you could. Yeah, so it was a really uh, left, it was a really left field situation. I'm sat on the A2. I get a phone call from a good friend of mine who's um, who works now with, I would, I, you know, I call him the brain, Steve Salis, who's a, a famous author and, you know, works with footballers. He's currently working at AFC Wimbledon with the first team. But I met Steve at Millwall and he said to me that someone had bought his book and I'm in a small paragraph in his book, Educating Football. Um, and it says something like Harry Watling is, you know, very good with words, a wizard with words, it says, um, and can, can bring, you know, bring things to life with players, etc. Someone in the US who's connected to Hartford has read that and reached out to Steve and just said, can you put me in contact with Harry? Um, and just to fast forward, you know, really quickly, I met the, met the technical advisor who was advising the owner. Um, met the owner. The owner's a brilliant guy and they sort of introduced me to the club. Hartford Athletic, three years old, five and a half thousand capacity, uh, on, live on ESPN every week. Uh, Want to try and get into the playoffs. Smaller club, smaller budget, underdog mentality, but want to really try and punch above our weight if we can. And I just looked at it, to be honest with you, and I thought, right, 32 games, I'm 31 years old to get 32 games as a 31-year-old, as a first-team manager, would be brilliant. Um, they was very, very clear. Couldn't take any staff with me. I had to go over there and, and 
mould the staff that were there. Um, the missus was still playing football, so I had to go alone. So it was, it was, it was, it was going to be a challenge, but it was something which, you know, I feel, I feel throughout my timeline, Ross, I've, I've always done things like that. So people always say to me, like, why'd you go to Millwall from Chelsea? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I was looking at the situation at Chelsea and I was thinking when we were there, there wasn't loads of players getting through into the first team. I didn't feel like I was going to be pushed as a coach to go higher than where I was. I felt like that was, that was where they see me. Um, so I went to Millwall, really left field. And I did the same thing at West Ham. Not many people go from Millwall to West Ham. I'm a Millwall boy. So, you know, really left field. But those decisions that, that I've made have really stood me in good stead. Um, so I, I made the decision. I just jumped at it, went over there. Led pre-season, first pre-season I've done as a, as a first-team manager. Probably made loads of mistakes, but great experience. Played played NYCFC in a pre-season friendly um, in the MLS. Brilliant, like I say, brilliant experience. Loved it. Loved every minute of the of the entire challenge. And it's been, you know, it's been a brilliant experience. I I believe it's five years worth of five years worth of experience in one season that's how I believe it's gone and it was you know really really good I'm incredibly grateful for it as well sounds like a great move mate and a, and a great um a great year you've had in terms of going in there then how did you find it into obviously first season managing a senior team even though a lot of the development principles are going to be underpinned and your playing style and stuff but how did you find that in terms of going there it's now about winning it really is about winning um yeah we want to develop but anything you found tough in terms of managing the group or getting your philosophy out to win win a game in a short period of time? No, do you know do you know what? I have to credit the players. The players were magnificent. We, you know, we had a we had to transform the identity of the club the previous season. Um Raddy Jaidi, who was 23's coach at Southampton, went over there as head coach, did a magnificent job, got them into the playoffs. Team played played a different style to how I wanted to play. Um, they went back to front, got it into the front with really good detail, but very, very early. Um, whereas I wanted to, I wanted to create a certain type of attack. Um, I wanted to create an attack and build through the pitch and get our exciting players on the ball in in particular areas. So that was a process, um, and that didn't, you know, we didn't. I don't feel like we really started to see that process until maybe seven, eight games into the season. We were picking up really good results, but you know, being able to open up the pitch and open up the opposition is. Is a difficult, it's a difficult feat. Um, I think being a developer, being someone that develops individuals, I'll do that naturally now. That will happen if I believe if you know if I'm working with you every day, I hope you'll get better. And that's you know, we've we've taken a number of players from an open trial situation this season. Now they're international footballers. So that was something that I'm really proud of. I think getting a message across, like you say, three points, you know, that's that's massive. The biggest thing for me, the hardest thing, recovering after a defeat. So you don't lose many games, you know, when you're in academy football. Um, when you do, it's academy football, so there's not a lot on it. We look, we went through a, we went through a period this season. Our first twelve games, we were absolutely flying. We were second in the table, had no right being there. And then midway through the season, we had a real tricky period where we had to fly over to the west coast play in high altitude in uh, Colorado. We had to play in high altitude in New Mexico, four away games all on a plane um, across maybe an eight or nine game period. We lost five on the spin, Ross. And it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. At the time, it was the worst thing and it was horrible for all of us. 
but how you recover after a defeat is massive. And I'll speak to anyone about it that will want to listen. If they want to go into first team management, is like, right, unless you're coaching Man United, you're going to lose between 10 and 15 games a season. That is, that's a fact. It's a statistical fact. It's not my opinion. It happens. So how can you turn your frown into a smile by Monday morning? How can you get back on the bike and, and keep going and, and, you know, get the players believing in it again because you've maybe let in a late, a late, you know, a late winner for the other team and you've done everything right throughout the game, but something's just not bounced for you. And it, that was really tough. But again, now I know how to a recover after a defeat, but B get out of a rut. And I think that's a big fear for certain people going into management. Right, if we lose two or three on the spin, how do I turn it around? And not a lot of managers know the answer to that. They'll say, "Oh, you might have to do this. You might have to do that." Um, so that was easily the biggest learning curve for me. But like I said to you before, like magnificent experience. I'm really, you know, really honoured to have done that at such a young age. Sure, no, mate. I'm sure you've added loads to their, their program, and, and you're planning for for next season already. Uh, we spoke. Interesting point you put there. We spoke to Mickey Bill on the last podcast. Obviously, a good friend of yours. Um, and he said about consistency being key. So you, players could have done everything for 85th minute, but the other team score a late minute, last minute winner because someone hasn't picked up at the back post. It doesn't mean that the players have let you down. You still have to trust the process. You know what I mean? You might have lost the game, but they, they trusted the process. So it's that consistency on a Monday morning is key. Um, cheers, H. Just going on a little bit now to the coaching side of things. And the next question's... Um, Next question could go in either way and you can take it wherever, mate. It's a big open question. So it's a narrow on things you want to. Could you summarise your overall coaching philosophy? Um, so key principles that you work on. You spoke a little bit about, you know, the style of play you want to play and what you're trying to take into Hartford from a development perspective. And then does anything change then at senior level or is it just an extension for you going through? I think it's an extension. I think that, I'm going to be honest, I think formations... Um, style, positions, that has to come later. That has to come later because, you know, with, with one of my teams, if we're playing 3-5-2, 4-3-3, 4-4-2, we'll look the same with the ball. We will look the same. We'll look exactly the same. So that, that's not really relevant in terms of if you're trying to sum things up. I think if I was to sum it up, you know, in a short way, I, I like to develop individuals, like I said at the beginning, develop individuals to be able to play and be an adaptable opponent be adaptable to play against any system to be a, you know to be a good 1v1 player I like exciting footballers I like players that can take the ball I like players that can show bravery I like players and I'm sure everyone else agrees that get you off the edge of your seat when they pick the ball up so for me it's about you know if we're if we're trying to build um, and we're trying to build from the back it's about okay we need to try and serve the ball into you know into good areas for our best players, our match winners, to go and get on it and do exactly that. So it's important that our front players stay really, really high, as high as they can, freeze the back line. So if we're playing a front three, you three, stay away, freeze their back four, their back five, whatever it is. Let's play a 6v4, 8v6 in this half. Let's find a spare player. Find a spare player, get him front facing, outplay if you have to, get yourself front facing, serve the match winners. And it's a constant, it's a constant, battle to say, right, let's let's win this overloaded situation. Let's serve the match winners. And I speak a lot to my players about making sure that they're, 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 they're brave enough to, to deal with that. So when you get the ball, I want you to go and make something happen. I don't want you to worry about, you know, I'll worry about setting the team up behind you. 
so that we can deal with the transition. You worry about setting the, setting the goal up for the team. Um, so that's really important. I like to create an environment, Ross, where players can come in and they can show exactly what their strength is. Like that's why that's why we've signed them. That's why they're in the building. So you know we've got some we've got some really good young players at Hartford. Uh, we've got really good play. You know, got some players that have scored some fantastic goals this season by doing exactly what they're good at. And I think in any team, if you look in any team in the world, ones that are performing, they have they have their unique qualities on show. They have a uniform mentality from the gaffer of how they're going to go and win the ball back. And then, a, you know, a uniform mentality of how they're going to try and play and get to areas of the pitch. It's about controlling and dominating space for me and then manipulating your opponent. Cheers, Hage. I mean, what does that look like on a day-to-day basis then? Do you want players to be able to flourish and, and, you know, not for it to be a negative environment where you're focusing on things they can't do? Day-to-day, how do you affect that and make that environment? How do you create that culture? I think the first thing is, you know, when you come into one of my training sessions, it's, you know, people might think, what's going on here? I've got two speakers. Um, we, we train at the stadium. Two speakers playing, playing music. It might be samba music. It might be house music. It might be Lionel Richie. It's whatever, whatever mood we're all in. But I'm smiling, turning up. I get a handshake and a smile from me, probably a cuddle. Um, I, I, I really encourage the players to come out early. I'm, you know, I'm a stickler for extras. I think you have to do more if you want to catch. If we're talking about, if we're talking about the best team in the league, and we want to catch the best team in the league. We've got to do more than them. We cannot do the same because we're not, we're not where they are. So, you know, they'll arrive, the music will be on. They'll be out for the first, first little bit doing their extras. Then it will be, you know, our, our warm-ups that we do are very, very specific very specific to what we're about to do during, you know, during that day. So if we're, if we're working on pressing, everything in that warm-up will be linked to prepare the players' bodies to go and press throughout the entire session. Um, if we're working on building from the back and we need to be calm, my coaches will know that they'll have to deliver the warm-up in a really calm manner and make sure that the players are getting lots of touches of the ball and they're, they're starting to introduce those actions and making sure that their hips are open in the right way with the ball to prepare them for what that is. And then it will be about the theme. Everything's about us. Everything that we do in training is about us and how we win and how we hurt the opposition. Um, we use a lot of technology. We use a lot of video where we can. Like I say, we don't have a massive budget, but you know, everyone can wheel a television out to the side of the pitch. And we, we use the TV a lot. We use a lot of video. Um, and most of the days, to be honest with you, you know, I'll be able to, I've got staff that can control the load, but most of the days will be double sessions. Um, There'll be double sessions in regards to maybe it's maybe it's gym in the afternoon, maybe it's individual finishing. Maybe I'll have I'll get the strikers in a lot. We have a strikers club. The strikers love it because they get extra finishing a lot throughout the day. But they're there to improve. That's the that is the that's the undenying point that the players when they come in they go I'm going to get better this season. H is going to H is going to develop me and, and make me better. And I want them to feel I want them to feel that improvement. I want them to feel getting better. And I think you, you feel that by, you know, explaining why, teach them the why. Brilliant saying, teach them the why. Teach them why they're doing this. Well, you're doing this because your left-footed finishes from cutbacks need to get better. Or you're doing this, we're creating this cross for you because you've scored five of them and we want you to score another five. So for me, it's, it, that, that's what it looks like and that's what it feels like. I think the word feel is really important, Ross. That's what it should feel like for the players. Coming in every day, 
in a team that's fun to play in and brilliant to watch. And I think that's really important. Yeah, great stuff, AJ. I was going to mention it earlier, but we skipped over it. You spoke about your staff and you just spoke about it there in terms of the coaches and, and delivering the scaffolding practices and the warm-up. You couldn't take any staff in there. What's your backroom staff like in terms of like at a USL level? How many staff are you are you overseeing? And what sort of staff have you had to go in and do in terms of education, just the way you've come from your background and, and maybe the way things are going to be different to where they've worked before? Yeah, I mean, I had... Um... So this, this season, I had two assistants, but not at the same time. So um, I had a guy that ended up moving from being the assistant to being the uh, technical director because he was more suited to that role. He was very, very analytical, um, very, very, very good at looking and watching players, how they, you know, how they can be developed, how we can get them in from a recruitment standpoint. And uh, John Stead come over, ex-Premier League centre-forward. John Stead, brilliant guy messaged me out of the blue and just said, I'd love to have the opportunity to potentially come and come and learn from you. So yeah, flew him over um, and he'd come over for six months steady and steady was brilliant. So there was me, steady, uh, sports scientist and goalie coach. And, and that was that was that was it. Um, analysts we had to go and get from local universities to come in as interns. Um, but it was it was very much our staff had to do more than any other set of staff, which I quite like, to be honest with you. So it was very much, you know, we we started training at 9am. I'm at the stadium at half six. I'm at the stadium. I'm feeling out the practices. I'm walking through things that I've planned the day before. We're, you know, having great conversations over a cup of tea and a biscuit. You know, that, that I think that's, a, you know, that's the environment you want to be involved in. And Steady was brilliant with the forwards. He was brilliant for me in terms of um, there were certain points in games where, Maybe I wanted to see the game out with the ball and steady, you know, having played a million games like he has, wonderful career, uh, would just say to me, you know, Gaff, we're gonna, we might have to play for position for the last five minutes rather than play for possession. And, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a war now, so maybe we might need to put another centre-half on. And this absolute gold dust to have around. Um, and he's back in the UK now. And I, I wanted to give Steady a shout-out because he's a... Brilliant bloke, great pro. He's going to be a brilliant coach as well, by the way. Really embraced everything. But it was a small group. It was a small group. Um, we would travel in small numbers, but it was about getting their buy-in initially, Ross. So minute I come in, I just had a look at everything, got the staff in on the third day, thanked them for welcoming me, told them how good I believed we could be as a set of staff with the resources that we had and told them that they needed to do more. We needed to do more in order to be better than your Tampa Bays and your Phoenix Risings and your Miamis and your Pittsburghs. Um, and they bought in, they bought in massively. And we had a, we had a brilliant season. It's a roller coaster. We had some wonderful nights, some absolutely wonderful nights. We beat Tampa Bay at Tampa Bay. We beat Miami at Miami. We played New York Red Bulls two at home and they dropped down seven first team players because they needed a win. And, and we ended up beating them 7-0, which was a, an absolutely brilliant night, you know, at home in front of our fans. And for me, it was a, I felt it was an extension of the amount of effort that the staff put in to create that exact environment I'm talking to you about. So it was, um, if I'm going into a club tomorrow in an ideal world, you know, I would love to be able to control the ratio of, of players to, to coaches. You know, as you know, I'm really close with Mick and I, I listen to Mick's podcast and I couldn't agree more with what he said to you about making sure that it's maybe one to seven, one to eight. I think he's spot on and I, I completely, you know, I'm singing off of that hymn sheet as well. 
Um, but I think sometimes you've got to, you've just got to jump in. If that's what you've got, you've just got to make it work, Ross, you know? 100%. And we talk about players being able to do a job and a half. Sometimes staff have to do two jobs, you know, and, and all muck in, especially when finances are, are not at the ready at some big clubs anyway. Um, hey, fantastic stuff. Just quickly there, you spoke a bit about analysis and you said we speak about us. It's all about us, how we're going to hurt the opponent. We focus on our strengths, which I totally agree with. Is there a part of it where you look at the opposition still and, and look at what you can break down in your position, what they might be good at, what we might have to be ready for? Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 just to be clear, when when I say us, we still watch, we still watch them. So we do three, we do three analysis sessions a week, which will include the opposition. So, how we how we dominate the ball against them, that's that's one session, and we look at that and we look in terms of where they're weak, where we can exploit. If we think one of their fullbacks is is a little bit soft, then we'll we'll show clips of him being soft. But then also link that with clips of our, our wide players and our fullbacks getting on overlaps or underruns and our maybe our number 10 reverses a run into the inside channel and, and exploits that half space. Then we'll do a, an analysis session on, on how we dominate the pitch and how we dominate the pitch against these teams. And then we'll do an analysis session on set plays. So it's how we dominate the ball, how we dominate the pitch and how we win in the box. And, and that's really important. The players will will also, in terms of video, they'll come into to my office and they'll come into to the assistant's office. We split the players up into smaller groups so they can do their individual clips. Um, and then on a match day, the analyst will send out a, a team sheet of the opposition. And it's uh, we call it 60-30-10, but it's how they beat their direct opponent. So the players can click on a hyperlinked picture of that, that player they think they're going to be playing against. And it's how you beat him. It's literally how you win the duel. Is he right-footed? Is he left-footed? Has he got any assists? Is he good in the air? Is he good twisting, turning? Is he great facing his own goal? Is he not? Would you put an early cross in? Has he scored any own goals? Has he scored any goals from distance? Everything around that. But it's always, I think the language is the most important thing. How do we beat these? It's important not to inflate the opposition so that they become, uh, you know, we start talking about them like they're Real Madrid. That's really important. We don't do that. It's almost like these are beatable. This is how we beat them with the players and the tools that we have available to us this week. Sure. It's about mindset, isn't it? It's about empowering your players and not instilling fear into them. Going into that, that, that war, as you said, really confident that you can dominate and win that. Hey, it's just moving on into a couple of areas or an area in particular that I know you're very passionate about and something that we've always done from 2009 was working together before the curve and it all came in individual development and, and you you speak about it so passionately with your players now about making them better what does that look like from a from a perspective where you haven't got those one to seven coaching lieutenants how do you affect everyone's individual program both strengths and maybe a limitation that you might need to work on across the week how do you do that with your program yeah i think i think the first thing to say is an IDP is not, it's not something you put on your fridge. It's not something you put on your wall. It's something you live every day. It's something you get out of bed every day and you know everything that you're doing, you're doing it on purpose. And I think that's so important to stress. That's how winners and that's how champions are made. That's, that's how, you know, I've personally seen so many top, top players now that are playing at the top level. I've got a drive and a desire to live and breathe it every day. And that's really important from, from, from my perspective. It's about how I plan it, how I link it to the individual. And it goes down to the very minute detail. If, 
if we're working on a pressing session and I know that my, my forward within his IDPs is how he heads the ball and how he heads the ball when he's coming across his left shoulder towards his right shoulder because that's where he's weak. He's right to left, brilliant, but he's left to right weak. What I must make sure that I am aware of is if we're working on a pressing session, he's probably not going to get many opportunities to work on that. But at the beginning of that particular practice, if I've got steady on the left-hand side, putting a cross in to start the practice for him to go and attack the ball, that's a creative restart. So straight away for me, it's like, right, can we introduce creative restarts to link to RDPs? Can we introduce sparring partners to link to RDPs? So again, talking about the same situation, do we, do we allow him to do the first five unopposed? Probably. Then do we go and put one of our center halves up against him so he's challenging that te technique? Definitely. Now, how can we link to that? Well, maybe my center midfielder has got to work on his diagonal pass out wide. Well, now the restart is ball goes into the midfielder, then he plays it out to steady, then steady crosses it, then we get that header from left shoulder to right shoulder. What about my fullback? Well, he needs to work on his crossing. And now he's going to cross it and steady's not. So it's about being creative with your restarts and how your practice design looks. It's about planning what you do, planning what you say. That's really important. And every single session, Ross, we have a 15-minute block at the end of the session, which is the players. Because that's my training for you. But as a pro, that should never be enough. Because that's what I think you need. But as a pro, you know what you need. So you might be a fallback and go, do you know what? I've only hit 15 crosses today. I want to hit another 15. So we created that window, that 15-minute window. And that 15-minute window, you know, I will lose my head if I, if I look up and there's bus queues and people are just practising free kicks that would never take free kicks if I've got centre-half practising penalties. It's got to be particular and it's got to be purposeful and it has to be your IDPs. It's got to be, it's got to be, if, you know, if my fullback's getting done with a diagonal all the time, well, that 15 minutes across the week, four sessions, that's an hour of you solidly working on not getting done with a diag. Is it your footwork? Is it your body shape? Is it your angle of approach? Is it your judge of the flight of the ball? So the, these things are really, really important. And we developed, um, we developed a, a small presentation for the players on numbers, because I think when you're talking about individually developing a player, numbers are important. How many repetitions should you be doing? If you give a player a bag of balls and they're working on finishing and they're not counting how many finishes they're having, there's no pressure on it. There's no pressure on it. If you put a number on it and you say, right, 12 finishes off your left foot, how many are you going to score? Now that's replicating not only the technique, but it's replicating the technique under fatigue because it's at the end of a training session, which no one ever talks about technique under fatigue and technique under pressure. What is pressure? Is pressure just having a body around you or is it that psychological pressure of, oh, I've got to score this one because I've only scored eight out of 12. I've got to score this last one. So I think going back to the very beginning when I said about living it, breathing it, you've got to understand it and you've got to understand what it means to be a pro. And what it means to be a pro is you understanding, first of all, understanding you need to get better. That is so important. You cannot stand still because if you stand still, the game's moving, you'll drop down a level. You will drop down a level, whether it's a team, a division. But if you can constantly move forwards, you may find that you're catching the best player in your group, the best player in your league, the best player in the league above. And that's, that's, that's what being a pro is. If I, again, if I look at some of the best players I've worked with, 
they have got an unbelievable desire to practice more than anybody else. You, you've got to drag them off the pitch. You've got to physically drag them off the pitch. So, you know, you can hear it. You can hear how passionate I am about it. You know, I, I will, you know, I will, I've got so much respect for what sports science, science has brought to the game. You know, how important it is to keep people fresh. I'll get that. I'll, I'll get that. But you know what? They need to get better. And that's, that's super important for me as well. Yeah, it's a great point, mate. It's a great balance for any sports scientist working out there because it's easy to say mm, they've done enough today, but how much is enough and, and are they improving? Um, I think it's important, a couple of points you raised there about players need to know it's not just here's your, you know, the PMA for the academy coaches or here's your, your IDP or individual plan. They've got to know it and they've got to be educated on, as you say, how to do it so that they get given the tools to do it. Then they bring their desire. But also having coaches around you like Steady who might say to you, H, you've been focusing, you've had the whole pie to, to focus about for this game, but that striker there hasn't got many headers across his right shoulder. He hasn't got much left at finishing in, in the box. So then it just, it just, you just fill the buckets up across the week. Do you know what I mean? So nothing's missed. I think that's quite important. You have good staff around you as well. Um, moving on a bit, H, from, from something I know you're very passionate about, and it links on to the individual, um, the individual side. I know you're big on the individual growth within training and something you, you spoke to me on, on the message about. Could you explain a bit more about this? It might link into the individual plans and just explain this concept a little bit more and what you mean. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it absolutely does. But it's about, for me, it's about goal setting. So what, what, I, what I was, you know, I'm really proud of my, you know, I don't want to don't sound like I'm boasting at all, but I'm just proud of my reputation that I created as a youth developer. I'm proud of when I look now, uh, I remember, you know, I laugh about it now, Michael Elise, I used to have to man-mark Michael in the dome when we did the Tuesday technical sessions. And he was the best player in the dome, Ross. But he, was, he, he used to misbehave. But I used to think to myself, what a, talented, what a talented young man. And now you're looking at him come through, you know, He's gone to Crystal Palace from Reading and he's flourishing. But you can pretty much look at most teams and go, I've worked with him or I've seen him work or I know someone that's worked with him. And I wanted to, I wanted to try my best to continue that reputation into first-team football of, of developing people and making people better. And it's about goal-setting. And for me, goal-setting is really important and creating creating goals, creating action plans to achieve the goals, creating mood balls. Beginning of the season, every player filled out a sheet for me um, and it was new to them. And some of the, some of the lads were like, oh, what's this? And you're going to get people buying. You're going you're gonna to have to sell it to certain people. But it was right. Fellas, I need two short-term goals. I need two short-term goals. I need a medium-term goal and I need your dream. What's your dream? Because your dream is important because that's what you're striving to. That's your long-term goal. I worked with a young boy called Warmer Martinez, who, who, this is a great story. He came in from an open, they call it an open tryout, which is basically you apply online via your agent or just via yourself. And you come in and you trial with a group of loads of people. Some people have never played football before and whatnot. So Warmer did really well in the open tryouts. He comes in pre-season. He wins his first in all of the fitness tests. So straight away, I look at his mentality and I go, he's a winner. He wants to, he wants to win. He wants to be here. Great focus, energy, winning mentality, willingness to learn, desire to compete. He's got all of it. So I sit him down at the end of pre-season and say, Warmer, you know, I want to offer you, a, I want to offer you a, a deal. I want to offer you your first contract. 
He gets up, grabs me round the round the throat, starts cuddling me and crying. Was just just was delighted. So we sit down with Warmer and we do his two short term his two short term goals was he wanted to start in ten games for us. He wanted to score two goals, but his dream was to play for El Salvador, which is his his home country. It's where his parents are from, where he's from. El Salvador. That was his dream. Well, ten games into our season we get a phone call from El Salvador saying that they want Walmart to come and play against the USA in front of 50,000 people. And it was probably one of the proudest moments I've had as a coach, certainly for him. I was delighted for him. Um, and and that, that's, that's an example of what I'm talking about in terms of that goal setting linked with the IDPs, linked with actually achieving it and developing people and developing players. And we did the same thing with the centre forward, uh, Juan Carlos Obregan, went and played for Honduras in the Olympics, scored in the Olympic Games in the under-23s for Honduras. Uh, Sebastian Elni, never been called up for his, his, international, his international team, gets a call up. Those moments are unbelievable when you're breaking the news to those boys. Uh, of We've had a call and they look worried. And then you tell them where the call's from and you just see them tear up because it's a... It's a milestone in their career. No one will ever be able to take away from them. So for me, I want to, I want to continue to do that. I want to continue the stories of Sam Adozi, who I'm sitting in Colorado this year and I'm trying desperately to get the Community Shield Leicester v Man City because I had Sam at 13, 14 and 15 at Millwall and he's starting on the left side of midfield for Pep Guardiola for Man City. And I want to continue doing that. I want to continue seeing... Josh Wilson Esbrand, who I took away with West Ham to, to, to Dallas for the Adidas Cup, comes back, Man City signing. Man United are after him. Um, I want to continue to do that. I want to continue to unlock potential of players, whether they are 17, 18, 19, or whether they're 30, 31. Danny Barrera, our captain, has done a marvellous job for me this season. He's the same age as me. He could have easily challenged me left, right and centre, but he was brilliant. He embraced it. He's had a record-breaking season. He's had 20 goal involvements. He's had 12 assists, the most in the league, eight goals. He's been brilliant. And for me, the biggest thing is develop the individual to play in any team, to play in my team, and then the team will flourish. And I think that hopefully that answers your question in terms of what that looks like and how it links to IDPs. 100% H. I think the detail you go in there, people talk about this holistic approach where you've got the four corners or depending on what club you're at, different corner um, status. But you just spoke about them all there in one. And it's like, we all go off and silo and work on the psychology side, but you just show in real life how you bring it all together to develop the person um, and achieve goals and, and benefit you as a manager as well. H, what's your view on coaching? I spoke to Mickey a little bit about it, and it's a hot topic at the minute We're on all the FA courses, you know, and, and the education that's going on about the game being the teacher. Let the game be the teacher. What's your view, especially now you've gone into senior level and you have to set principles up and you do have to work on shape and you have to set a team up to be able to win on stopping the coaching session or letting the game be the teacher? Where's the balance lie for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm not shy in saying this, Ross. I, I think we've gone, I think we was probably 15 years ago, we was too much stop, stand still. And I think now we've gone completely the other end of the spectrum. We're just like, right, let them play. And I think that gives coaches an opportunity at times to hide. I don't think there's anything wrong with showing the players that you've got a little bit on the dance floor. I think that's really important. 
for the players to see, hang on a minute, this fella can coach and this fella knows his stuff, but, but it's when and where. I think that's really important. I think when you're working with, with, with pros, I think it's more about, I think it's, uh, it's relationship management. I think you are going to introduce them to things that they haven't seen before. That's normal. But you're, you know, you're very rarely going to, I think, you know, reinvent the wheel with them. So I think there's got to be a respect element there of not stopping it too much and, and explaining the absolute basics. I think you've got to be creative when you speak. The best, best bits of coaching I do are normally over a coffee or it's in a drinks break or it's going for a bit of food or it's in a unit meeting. Um, most of the time, I'll be honest, if I use my ears, I'll, I'll hear what, what I want to hear from, from those conversations. But like I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, with the players seeing that, that, you've, that you've got the ability to coach and you've got the knowledge. I look, at, I look at the most successful managers right now, right now in our league. Why do, why do the Chelsea players follow Tuchel? Why do they follow his instructions to a T? because they believe in the instructions and they believe in him. Now, he has got to have shown them, he's got to have shown them a little bit, you know, on the grass. Guardiola on the grass. Every time I see a snippet of a training session, I stop what I'm doing, I put my tee down and I'm looking and I'm watching. I'm looking at how he moves. The best coaches I've worked with, Michael Bill, brilliant on the grass. Dick Bate, great coach educator, brilliant on the, like, absolutely brilliant on the grass. Bob Osborne, who I worked with with the Nines at Chelsea, genius. Bob was a genius, but brilliant on the grass. And all these people have got, for me, they've got something in common. Is that they've got you. They've got you. When they speak, they've got you. When, when they stop the session, they're stopping it for a purpose and their message is so clear, but it's so inspiring. So I think to answer your question, I think there's got to be a balance. I think letting the ball roll is super important. I think when you stop it, you've got to be, there's got to be a teaching element. So I see a lot of practices. I see a lot of people copy and pasting practices and the practices might be great. What are the players learning? That's important. Is the practice teaching them? Okay, right. But there's going to be a point where you may have to Q&A someone just to check that their understanding is there. There may be a point where you need to stop it for the entire group to make a point. And there may be a time where you stopped it for the entire group to make a point where you didn't need to do that. But, but again, I think it's when and where, but oh, so I'll go back to it again. I don't think there's anything wrong with, with, with showing what you're good at because that's why you've got the job. That's why you're there. Yeah, I think you're hitting nail on the head about the balance there, mate. And sometimes it's about not showing all of your party tricks at once. You don't need to. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's one clear point in and out and, and, and whether it's a drive bar, whether you're stopping the session. Hey, last one around the coaching side, mate. You spoke a bit about your day and how early and obsessed you are and you get into work early and you plan the sessions. What does a day look like for you and a team? And what does a typical training session, you can take any day of the week and any team, what does that look like from start, warm-up, scaffolding practice all the way through to, to the end? Yeah, I think, um, so we'll, we'll, always plan, we'll always plan the day before in terms of, you know, the, the, the minute detail, like I said about, you know, linking the practice to the player, linking the player into the IDP, um, and, and then back round again, linking the IDP to the practice. I normally get I normally get to the stadium because we train at the stadium about half six in the morning. I'll have a coffee. Um, Steady gets there literally the same time. We'll have a chat about you know you know how we're gonna attack the you know the the session. 
which players we, you know, we're going to try and split so we keep an eye on certain players, which players we might challenge a little bit, how we're going to challenge them, which players might need an arm around them. Um, about 7.30, the wellness questionnaire comes through to me. So we put a wellness question out for the players. How did you sleep? What was your dinner like last night? What time did you go to bed? How are you feeling this morning? Any aches, niggles? Um, what topic are we working on today? Do they know? That's important. Um, the injured players will report in slightly earlier um, to see Kevin, our physio. Kevin will then come and update me if anyone is okay to potentially jump in as a float or, or you know, people are still out and we might have to adapt the session from there. Then the music goes on. Sports scientist arrives. Uh, we've got like a pre-activation area under the stands, prehab area where the bands are out, the rollers are out, the mats are out, the music's on. Um, I've got a massive whiteboard that I wheel onto the pitch where I literally redraw the session plan up for the players because some players are, are, are call them students and they want to see it written down. So I'll have the magnets up and I'll have that out. We have the TV on the side of the pitch as well where we use a, we use a program called Speedio where we, we watch, we, we film the session, but we can just live replay certain things and I can move it with the iPad. So if I want to call, call someone over, uh, I've just got the iPad, HDMI cable into the TV. Have a look at this. So there's no disagreements there. You, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't float it enough to the back post, or your angle to to attack that ball wasn't quite harsh enough, or whatever. Um, so we go prehab, pre-activation. I'll always start with with some sort of technical challenge just to get the boys buzzing. Really, it might be you know 14 clipping balls into buckets. It might be boxes. It, it's just getting them laughing, just enjoying being at work, Ross. That's important. And then we, you know, we focus a hell of a lot with the ball. So it would normally be a, a technical practice. I love a passing practice, but the passing practices include everybody. So if we've got centre midfielders, they're working on their rotations. Fullbacks are working on, you know, position-specific runs. Forwards are work, forwards will have the sports science with a, a big exercise ball behind them where they're pinning in to receive it and. You know, it's all position specific within that. We'll then go straight away. We'll get the goalkeepers in and we'll go with a, a game-based practice. If it's a possession, it has to be directional. has to be directional. We've got to attack and defend goals. I do, I do do a lot of 11 v 11 work because that's the game. Now, 11 v 11 might not necessarily mean an exact 11 v 11, but it might be back four against front three and a number 10. Um, we do break off into, into position-specific stuff as well quite a lot because, for me, we've got to, we've got to rehearse what we're going to be doing in the games. Um, and if we ever do patterns, or normally we do pattern, pattern work on a Friday and then set plays, I don't coach that. I'm in the stands, so I go right to the top of the stands. I've got my earpods in like you have now, and I'm linked up with a goalie coach on a, on a, on a call and steady. So steady takes the front half, the goalie coach takes the back half. We've got the patterns already on the TV, so the players watch the pattern that we want. That use we're using various software to create that. Then they'll go and recreate it, and I'm I'm just relaying what I'm seeing from a bird's eye view down to them. So it might be that I think the centre half needs to drop another five yards down the line of the box just to entice pressure. It might be that the fullback's relationship with the centre half when he gets the ball is too big. So if we lose it on transition, he can't get there. But it's just small small details like that that I relay. Um, and then once we've done that, we'll eat, we'll do a bit of video. We go back to 1010, which is our, our base, which is 15 minutes up the road where our gym is, my office is. 
And that's where we do a lot of the, the, the meetings, the, the group meetings, um, whether it be senior leadership group, whether it be a set piece committee. So I have a set piece committee, one player from each unit, once a week, they come in to me and they present the best restarts they've seen in the top leagues in the world. And they go, H, what do you think of this? And I'll go, I don't like that one. <laughs> or they'll go, what do you think of this one? I'll go, that's brilliant. Let's try it tomorrow. Let's work it at the weekend. Um, or it will be unit meetings where we'll have the unit meetings are brilliant because we have one imposter in every meeting. So we'll have all the midfielders together, but then we'll put a centre-half in there so that the centre-half can then go back to the other defenders and say, this is what the midfielders talk about. This is what they think of you. This is what they need from you. Um, so all of those things will happen on various days, Ross, but we're normally in... Players will normally be in from around 8.30 to around 2 o'clock. Um, unless, they, unless they've got a double session where we'll go back to the pitch and work on some bits. But I try and make myself very, very available for the players. Oh, you know, I hear a lot of managers say they regretfully tell their players at the beginning of each pre-season that their door is always open and then the players drive them mad. But I'm the other way. My door is always open. You can come in, you can come and have a chat, ask me why you're not playing. You can ask me why you are playing. We can go through your clips. You've just got to book it in. If you want to do some extras because you, you, you're not comfy with how, how the training session's gone this morning, we'll speak to the sports scientist about what, you know, what we're able to do and what everyone's comfortable with, what tomorrow might look like and how that would affect that. So there's loads going on, mate. There's loads of moving parts. But, you know, I'm, I'm there. You, I, you can hear it in my voice. I'm living it every day. I'm loving it. Um, and we're, we're trying to just create the best possible version of these boys we can. Right, some fantastic detail there. Thank you very much. I love your imposter stuff because you talk about if you have a midfield, um, let's say you have a midfield clinic or midfield unit meeting, you talk about rotation to get on the ball, for example, but you're reliant on your centre-halves to serve on the ball and you're reliant on your full-backs to play into them. So it's so important that everybody knows the roles of different units. I think that's class. Hey, it's just moving on. I think you, you've answered a lot of the management questions. So just one, just one from me, really. Um, and then we'll go on to the quick fire round, if, if you don't mind. Or we'll, we'll do two. We'll, we'll firm up the, the first one first. So you, I think I get a good sense of what manager you are. What manager, obviously going from a, a development coach and, and managing those processes to senior level, what manager at top end are you? What manager do you want to be? Are you there yet? Or is there certain development plans that you feel you need to get there for maybe the next role? Um, and what do you live and breathe from a management perspective? We've heard a lot, but what do you think from, from, your, from your perspective? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm anywhere near where I can be. Um, I think I'm miles away, to be honest with you, mate. I'm miles and miles away from where I want to be. I, I want to be, and it, it's an odd question to answer, um, the best, the best ones to ask that are obviously the players that have played for me over the years. Have they enjoyed it and whatnot? First and foremost, I want to be a manager that players want to play for, um, and that lends itself to being a man manager, I suppose. Um, but I think, I think the man manager is always tarred with the wrong brush. I think when you speak about someone like Harry Redknapp, they say, "Oh, he's, he's a great man manager," and that sort of lends itself to him being tactically inept, which is completely wrong. I know Harry really well, and. You have a conversation with Harry Redknapp about the game. You come out really insecure about yourself because you're like, wow, like, I thought I knew about the game. This guy knows so much about football. It's frightening. So man, a man manager, I think tactically, I've got loads to do. I've got loads to learn about how to see a game out in different scenarios, how to come from behind, um, how to come from behind 2-0 down, 3-0 down. I've got loads to do. I've experienced that this season. You know, I'm really pleased with some of the outcomes of the things that I've tried. 
Um, ultimately, Ross, going back to the word development, um, I want to be known as a developer, mate. I want to, if I, if I, you know, if, if people talk about me, I want them to say, go and play through him and he'll make you better. I want to be a winner. Absolutely want to be a winner. But I think developing winners, developing players that, that can go to the next level is something I want to be renowned for. Brilliant. I think that's something that's, that's, as things move on and on, I think that's something that you have to be at first team level now. You have to be a developer. Whereas years ago, historically, you've done your development years and now it's about seeing your career and winning games. And I think that's brilliant, mate. Last one from here, we're going to the quick fire round. So spoke a lot, we've spoken a lot about your experience in your current role and previously. What for you, if you don't mind, is the next role whenever it happens and, and how are you preparing yourself for that challenge? Yeah, I, I don't know to be honest. I mean, I'm, I mean, I'm really enjoying where I am at the moment. Um, I think ultimately I want to come back to England. Ultimately, I want to come and manage in England. I think it would take a really brave owner, um, a really brave owner to employ a. I mean, I'm 32 next week, but it would it would it would take a brave owner to to, to look at someone that's not managed in the UK um, and go, well, he's 32, he's managed. Say I've managed by the end of this season, I'd have, I'd have managed sixty games. Managed sixty games. His win percentage is X. Uh, should we give him a chance, or should we go with someone that's been around the block and knows how to keep us up? And that you know that's always going to be a challenge. I believe if I can get in front of the right person and, and really express how I feel, I, I believe I've got a chance. Um, but I, I'm I'm still in that phase at the moment where I'm I'm learning the trade. I'm learning the trade. I'm so young in management. Um, but ultimately, I, I want to manage in England and I want to manage at the very highest level I can. Um, whether that means coming back to England to, to be someone's number two to learn from them or going straight in, I, I don't know. It's very difficult to, to know what's going to happen. But yeah, I'd love to come back to England because I believe we have the best, I believe we have the best four, five, six leagues in the world if you're looking at strength in depth. You know, I believe if you look at the conference now, there's 12 football league teams in the conference. If you look at League Two, it's the same. Like League One, teams like Sheffield Wednesday and Sunderland are in League One, like massive league championship. And obviously, you know, everyone's ultimate goal, they're lying to you if they don't, if they don't admit this. They want to manage in the Premier League. So, you know, that that's my goal to, to at some point come back to, to come back to the UK and be a manager. Cheers, H. I'm sure people will follow your, your career after this. I'm sure you'll you'll get there at some point, mate. Um, last thing from us, then, if you don't mind, a quick fire round. So I've got six questions here. Answer short questions. You can you can take as long as you want, but the idea is you <coughs> answer it as short as you can. Um, number one, who's big, been the biggest influencers of your career so far? And I probably know one of them. Yeah, I think Michael Bill, definitely. Uh, Steve Salis is another one. Um, I'd encourage anyone to go and look Steve up. An absolute wizard. Dick Bate, another one. Ben Bartlett, another one. And, and all of these people, I think, are very, you know, Dick Bate, obviously not with us anymore, but all of these other people, I think, are very open. Ben, now head of coaching at Fulham. Uh, Steve is working AFC Wimbledon. Mick's just gone to Aston Villa. Um, Terry Wesley, Liam Manning. So some of these people that have just been been great for me um, in terms of being, being a, you know, a voice of, 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 of knowledge and, and reason. Best player you've ever worked with, and that could be at any level. Wow, what a question. I'll, I'll have to reel some off again. I think that era, Ross, that we was involved in at Chelsea, I mean, you worked slightly older than I did, so you'd have had your Cole Kits and your Tammy Abrahams and your Masons. And I think Callum, Callum Hudson-Odoi is one of the best I've ever seen, ever. 
Um, Jamal Musiala was absolutely top at nine and ten, and now he's playing for Bayern Munich. Michael Elise, brilliant. Darko Diaby at Millwall, he'll be one that you'll hear about in a few years' time. He's now at Man City. He's he's got everything. Uh, Sam Adozi, boy, boy at West Ham, two boys at West Ham. Josh Wilson, Ez Brand, who also went to City, and another lad, Jamal Baptiste, centre half, proper player. Um, there's been loads, mate, but yeah, I'd say I'd say those guys. One one more to be fair is Dan Kemp. Dan Kemp, if you remember Kempy at Chelsea? Kempy's at Orient now. What a pro. Honestly, he's the best pro I've ever worked with in terms of you can't get him out of the building. He wants to do clips, he wants to do extras. He's what a pro. He'll that Dan will still, in my opinion, I still think he'll go to the very top. I think he's just taking a different route. But Dan Kemp's another one. Cheers, mate. You spoke about this a little bit, but maybe the specifics. What's your dream job? Maybe a dream club, maybe a dream wherever you think. I think I'd like to. I'd like to. Uh, I'd like to come back to the UK at some point. Um, I'd love to go back to. Love to go back to one of the clubs I've worked for previously. Um, I'd love to work at Millwall. It's where I'm from. It's where my people are from. My family are from. I'd like to go and work in Spain. Um, I take three Spanish lessons a week at the moment because fifty percent of my group are Spanish speaking. Um, so I'm trying to desperately work on that. I'm, I'm not great at all, but trying to work on that. So there's, there's a few boxes I want to tick. Like Sam, 31, I think I've probably got another 20, 30 years in the game. So I'd love to be able to move around and, and achieve some of those things. I, Ross, I think, like I said to you, Premier League's got to be the, the target, hasn't it? Taking Millwall to the Premier League, huh? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> um, biggest achievement so far? I think probably this year, to be honest with you, I, I, you know, I was lucky enough to pass my A license, uh, my B license at 18, A license at 26, which were big, big achievements for me at young age. Being a manager at 31, the youngest in the youngest in the league, um, yeah, I would say that's a, a big achievement. Brilliant. Biggest regret if you've got one? Yeah, no. Do you know what? I've got loads, but that's that's sort of led me to where I am today. I've made so many mistakes. I, you know, I remember when I when I was you know I was coming through and I thought I knew everything and I was you know, I was so energetic and so passionate. I wanted to you know I wanted to coach every minute of every day. You know, I had an opinion. My opinion was probably wrong ninety nine percent of the time. And it just you know I've I've learned I've learned to round myself and I've only learned that through making those 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 poorer decisions. So. I'm, I'm kind of thankful that I was a little bit of a maverick when I was when I was younger, especially at Chelsea. I must have driven people mad, but I'm you know I'm grateful that I've I've gone through that period and learned as much as I have. Top man, last one, mate. Best piece of advice you give to coaches now? Yeah, go and go and uh, go and network. I'm I'm terrible at networking. I'm trying to get better, but reach out to people. Reach out to people for a coffee. Reach out to people to go and watch a session. Um, I'm going to watch. I'm going to watch Ben Garner work tomorrow at Swindon. I don't know Ben, but we we connected on LinkedIn, and I just thought, you know what? I'm going to message Ben because I've got a lot of respect for what he's done, and he was great. He said, "Yeah, come in, come in next week." But you 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 don't know unless you ask. So go and watch as many sessions as you can, and that's an open door to people with me as well. If people want to jump on a Zoom and have a chat, or you know, want to talk, or want to come and see a session, they're more than welcome. 
brilliant advice, mate. Paige, thank you very much. We've just kept under the, 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 just over the hour, I think, so we've done well. Um, made some invaluable stuff in there, and I think Coach is going to take loads away from that. All the best in the plan for, for pre-season. Um, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. And, and again, just to the listeners, thanks to our sponsors, Ritz, coming on board with us again and their continued support. And a massive thanks to Harry Watling today for his time and, and, and his expertise and knowledge that we're going to get loads from. Cheers, Ross. Top man, mate.